Hello and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel and I am your host. To all my original listeners, welcome back. To all my new listeners, welcome. If you enjoy the podcast and wish to support this show, you can help support it by clicking on the support link in the description of any episode. I have also created a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the episodes for this podcast. There is also a link on the website to the Facebook page for All Things Plantagenet. Okay, so now on to the show. And Edmund Beaufort were well founded when, at the Leicester Parliament of 1426, a petition was introduced asking the Chancellor to grant to king's widows permission for them to marry at their will. There was no direct reference to Catherine, but he could hardly have referred to anyone else. The petition was deferred by the Chancellor for further consideration, but at the next Parliament, which opened in Westminster in the autumn of 1427, an unambiguous response was given. A statute was made that expressly forbade queens from remarrying without the special license of an adult king. It claimed to seek the preservation of the honour of the most noble estate of queens of England. In effect, its purpose was to prevent Catherine from being wedded to an Englishman for at least a decade. The wording of the legislation made it clear that the cost of marrying the Queen Dowager was nothing short of financial ruin. He who acts to the contrary and is duly convicted will forfeit for his whole life all his lands and tenements. And so, Edmund Beaufort's dalliance with Catherine came to an abrupt legalistic end. We don't know if Edmund and Catherine continued to have a physical relationship, or if indeed they ever had one. If so, then Beaufort in particular would have been taking a massive personal risk, of the sort that he would in later life show every inclination to avoid. In any case, by 1431, the Queen had defied Parliament's ruling by another means, not by marrying a Beaufort, but by falling in love with a charming Welsh squire by the name of Owen Tudor. Quite how Tudor came to meet Queen Catherine remains a mystery. The truth, buried beneath a number of romantic and comic stories spread in the centuries that followed, some designed to laud Owen's memory, and others to deride it. Certainly Catherine had links with Owen's homeland. The lands assigned to her after Henry V's death comprised great swaths of North Wales, including Beaumaris, Flint, Montgomery, Bilf, and Harden. It's also possible that Owen, too, had links with the Queen's home country. In his late teens or early twenties, he may have gone to war in France. A man, listed as Owen Meredith, served alongside Henry V's steward, Sir Walter Hungerford, in 1421, and since Hungerford was later the steward of young Henry VI's household, we can reasonably suggest that this may be how Owen found his way into Catherine's domestic sphere. More than that is hard to say. Mischievous stories dating from the late 15th and 16th centuries Variously claimed that he was a son of a tavern-keeper or a murderer, that he fought at Agincourt, that he became the queen's servant or her tailor, 
that he and Catherine fell in love either because she caught sight of his naked body while he swam in a river, or that they were smitten after he got drunk at a dance and fell insensible into her lap. Whatever the case, by around 1430 they had met, and Catherine had decided that this lowly Welshman, born of a family of rebels, was the man she would take as her second husband. Her second marriage could scarcely have been more different from her first. A later writer suggested that the Queen didn't realise she was marrying so far below her station. Queen Catherine, being a French woman born, knew no difference between the English and Welsh nation. But it would have been an astonishingly unobservant woman who lived in English royal circles for a decade without realising the pariah status of the Welsh, even those who, like Tudor, could boast impressive ancestry. Penal laws passed in 1402 forbade Welshmen from owning property, holding royal office, convening public meetings or wearing armour on the highways. Welsh law was suppressed and Welsh castles were to be garrisoned only by pure-blooded Englishmen who couldn't be convicted of a crime on the testimony of a man of Wales. These penal laws applied equally to Welshmen and Englishmen who married Welsh women. It had long been clear that the mingling of blood was unacceptable, and Catherine would have been not simply a foreigner, but a fool not to have noticed. The most likely explanation is that Catherine, chafing against the Council and Parliament's ban on her remarrying, decided to take a husband who was a political non-entity, one who already possessed so few rights to property and rank that the threat of legal ruin meant very little. Nevertheless, their marriage was contracted in secret, probably while most of the English court was abroad for the king's French coronation in Paris. Shortly afterward, their first son was born, at the manor of Much Haddam in Hertfordshire, the great timber-framed country palace belonging to the bishops of London. The boy was named Edmund. It has been suggested that this was because the real father was Catherine's old flame, Edmund Beaufort, implying that the Queen married Owen Tudor as an expedient to prevent the law's cruel ruin falling upon her real lover. This seems very unlikely. Catherine's marriage was kept discreet during her lifetime. It was a matter of privileged court gossip rather than public knowledge. But those who saw the Queen, particularly Cardinal Beaufort and his followers, with whom she remained close, could be under no illusion. More children were born in quick succession. A second son, Jasper, was born at Bishop's Hatfield in Hertfordshire. There was probably a third son, Owen, who was entrusted to the monks of Westminster and lived a long, quiet life as a monk, and a daughter called either Margaret or Tassine, who may have died young, for nothing certain is known of her. All came before 1436, and as many as four full pregnancies in little more than five years couldn't possibly have been concealed. Had the father been a man with any independent political status or ambition, the birth of children who were half-siblings to the king would have caused a crisis. But as it was, Catherine and her new young family managed to live quietly and uneventfully, and Owen was accommodated formally into the realm.
Letters of denizenship were granted to him in the Parliament of 1432, conferring on Owen Fitzmeredith the status of a faithful Englishman for the rest of his life. Two years later, he was granted interest in the Queen's lands in Flintshire, reflecting his family's ancient position in North Wales. Yet although Owen Tudor enjoyed a degree of protection from the law, his security was completely dependent on his wife. By 1436, the Queen had fallen ill with a lingering disease that progressively weakened her body and mind. By the end of the year, she had moved into Bermondsey Abbey, a Benedictine monastery which regularly tended the sick and wounded on the south bank of the River Thames, directly opposite the Tower of London. She lay there through a bitter winter, when a great, hard, biting frost grieved the people wonderfully sore, froze the chalk in the walls to dust, and killed the herbs in the ground. The discomfort was too much. On New Year's Day, 1437, Catherine made her will, in which she complained of a grievous malady, in the which I have been long, and yet am troubled and vexed, and named the king as her sole executor. Two days later, she died, age thirty-five. Catherine de Valois was buried in the Lady Chapel at Westminster Abbey on February the 8th, her coffin carried below a black velvet canopy hung all around with bells and topped with a delicate wooden effigy, painted as if it were alive, which can still be seen today. But Owen Tudor didn't have much time to grieve. He realized that the death of the Queen Dowager amounted to more than the sad loss of his wife. It placed him in immediate personal danger. He had broken a statute made in Parliament, fathered a number of children who were half-blood relations to the King, and could now expect to be pursued. His enemies weren't long in showing themselves. As soon as Catherine was laid to rest, the council, driven by the tireless Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, went after Owen. Thus it was that the messengers sent from London had caught up with him in Warwickshire as he travelled toward Wales, and sent him wearily down to Westminster to face the music. On arrival at Westminster, however, Owen Tudor chose not to present himself to the council. Instead, he threw himself on the mercy of the abbey, where he claimed the right of sanctuary, and there held him many days, eschewing to come out thereof. After a while, the administrations of friends persuaded Owen that by staying behind the walls of Westminster Abbey, he was only serving to make his case worse. It was said that the young king had been stirred to anger, although the records of Owen's arrest and interrogation before the council give the strong impression that any real royal wrath was stage-managed by the Duke of Gloucester, and that Henry VI hadn't interested himself very deeply, if at all, in the details of his stepfather's flight. Nevertheless, after a fashion, Owen emerged from Westminster and was brought before the king. He affirmed and declared his innocence and his troth, affirming that he had no thing done that should give the king occasion or matter of offence against him. It was a performance good enough to earn him a release back to Wales, 
but as soon as he arrived back in his homelands, he was promptly rearrested for breaking the terms of his royal safe conduct. This was rather a dubious charge, since he hadn't accepted safe conduct in the first place, but it didn't matter. Now Owen's valuables were seized, taken into the treasury, and given away to royal creditors, and Owen himself was shut up in the grim surroundings of the notorious Newgate prison in London, with only a chaplain and servant for company. Although Newgate had been completely renovated in the 1420s and early 1430s, and had a code of rules supposedly to protect prisoners from the worst horrors of confinement, it wasn't a pleasant place to stay. Its inmates, both male and female, were held there for offences ranging from debt and heresy to thieving, fighting, treachery and murder. Many were waiting to be brought before a judge, and plenty of those were certain to swing on the hangman's rope, or worse. Some prisoners there were clapped in irons, others were tortured, and extortion was commonplace by jailers who could make a handsome private profit by charging their prisoners for privileges and even basic comforts, such as food, bedding, and candles. There were a few decent rooms, with lavatories and chimneys, and even access to a chapel and a flat roof above the main gate, where exercise could be taken. But other parts of the prison, dungeons known as the less convenient chambers, were dark, cramped, and diseased. Fortunately, Newgate Prison was corrupt enough to make escape a realistic possibility, and Owen Tudor determined to do precisely that. In January 1438, his chaplain helped him organise a bid for freedom. It was briefly successful. Owen fought his way out of the prison compound in a dash so violent that his jailer was hurt foul. But his flight was short-lived. He and his accomplices made it out of the prison, but were rearrested within days and promptly sent back. It wasn't until July that Owen's friends, represented by none other than his late wife's one-time sweetheart, Edmund Beaufort, secured his transfer to the more salubrious surroundings of Windsor Castle, where he was put under the watch of Sir Walter Hungerford, the captain under whom he may have served in France nearly two decades previously. Eventually, in July 1439, Owen was deemed to have suffered enough for his temerity in disobeying Parliament. He was given his freedom and pardoned. It had been a painful two years. The Welsh bard Robin Thee, writing some years later, composed a poem that lamented the fate of this adventurous but unlucky Tudor. Neither a thief nor a robber, neither debtor nor traitor, he is the victim of unrighteous wrath, he wrote. His only fault was to have won the affection of a princess of France. Owen Tudor's journey, however, wasn't quite over, for his marriage to Queen Catherine had produced more than just tall stories and trouble. As a Welshman emerged from his imprisonment, his two eldest sons, Edmund and Jasper, were taking the first steps of their own lives, which would, in time, prove just as remarkable as that of their enterprising father. Catherine de la Pole, abbess of Barking, had every reason to be pleased with the religious house over which she ruled.
The elegant, richly furnished buildings of the Abbey, set around the large double-fronted church of St. Mary and St. Ethelburga, enclosed one of the wealthiest and most prestigious nunneries in England, home to around thirty ladies in holy orders, served by a large staff of male servants and priests. Wealthy daughters and widows from the titled aristocracy and upper gentry came to Barking to retire from the world as inmates, where they followed the Benedictine rule in a life of prayer, charity, high-born company, and scholarship. Good connections had over the years brought Barking money, property, honour, and fame. Catherine, who as abbess held the same privileged rank as a male baron, controlled thirteen manors and lands in several different counties, besides the hundreds of acres that surrounded Barking itself. A glance out of one of the western windows of the nun's dormitory, known as the daughter, revealed the scale of the abbey's endowment. Swaths of the flat green woodland and countryside of the Thames estuary, which stretched toward the broad horizon. In the distance, not more than a day's ride away, was London, the hub of England's wealth and power. In the spring of 1437, Catherine welcomed two young visitors from the capital, two boys referred to in record by the torturously quasi-Welsh names of Edmund ap Meredith ap Tidir and Jasper ap Meredith ap Tidir. They were sons of the late Queen and her shortly to be imprisoned Welsh widower, Owen Tudor. Edmund was aged about seven, Jasper a year or so younger, and by any standards the young boys had endured a shocking and turbulent year. Catherine's task was to offer them respite and shelter from the sudden chaos, a place to grow up away from the dangerous and unpredictable throng of London and the court. When Edmund and Jasper rode through the arch of the gatehouse and into Barking's precincts, and first saw the soaring spires of the abbey church, the quiet gardens that lay within the cloisters, and the little outbuildings that surrounded the abbey proper, they should have been reassured that they were coming to a place of peace and stability. It would be their home for the next five years. Barking was used to taking in children. The abbesses often stood as godparents for Essex's well-to-do families, whose privileged offspring had been placed into the abbey for the early stages of their education since the time of the Venerable Bede in the 8th century. But the half-brothers of a king brought with them special requirements. Catherine wasn't expected to spare any expense on raising Edmund and Jasper. It cost the abbey the enormous sum of thirteen shillings and fourpence a week merely to feed the boys and their servants, quite apart from the further expense of their lodging, education, clothing, and entertainment. Over the years that followed, the abbess would have to write on many occasions to the royal exchequer, asking for huge sums to recompense her for Edmund and Jasper's upkeep. Although on occasion the exchequer was slow to pay her bills, there was no question of shirking the abbey's responsibilities. Rich, refined, and intellectually advanced, Barking Abbey was a wonderful place to grow and learn. Latin and French, as well as English, were used by the nuns in an age when the vernacular was becoming the standard language of communication and discourse. 
The library contained volumes by Aristotle, Aesop, Virgil, and Cicero, collections of saints' lives, books of sermons, meditations on the life of Christ, and even an English translation of the Bible, which the nuns were specially licensed to own. One Mary Chaucer had been a nun at Barking in the fourteenth century, and the Abbey owned a copy of her relative Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. The Abbey Church held the bones of its first abbess, St. Ethelburga, as well as a particularly fine ornamental cross in the oratory, which drew large crowds of penitents and pilgrims on feast days. One famous ritual was the Easter play, a recreation of Christ's harrowing of hell, in which nuns and their priests paraded through the church holding candles and singing antiphons, before symbolically releasing from damnation all the souls of the prophets and patriarchs. There was, however, another reason for Edmund and Jasper to be domiciled there at such expense. This was Catherine herself. She was a tenacious, astute woman who was sufficiently impressive to have been elected to her post at only twenty-two or twenty-three. She was also the sister of William de la Pole, fourth Earl of Suffolk, a member of the Royal Council, steward of the Royal Household, and an increasingly close companion of the young king. It's very probable that William recommended Barking as the Tudor boy's new home to the king, for his advice counted heavily at court and in the council. Certainly, at the moment that Edmund and Jasper arrived into his sister's care, Suffolk was beginning to establish his position as a central figure in the young Henry VI's government. He was the man around whom almost every important political decision of the following decade was to turn. And so, thanks to these generous connections, Owen Tudor's sons remained peacefully at Barking for the next five years, even while their father fought to stay out of prison. It would be more than a decade before their closeness in blood to the king was formally recognized, and they were elevated to positions of importance at court. In the meantime, it was their half-brother, Henry VI, whose emerging personality became the focus of English politics, with results more disastrous than anyone could ever have foreseen. Part 2 What is a King? 1437-1455 A quote from the Brute Chronicle Thus began sorrow upon sorrow, and death for death. Chapter 5 my Lord of Suffolk's Good Lordship King Henry VI grew up beneath an almost crushing burden of expectation. Through no fault of his own, he was the first Plantagenet king to have finally achieved what many had attempted, to be crowned king both of England and of France. His father had been one of the most famous men in the Christian world, a conquering hero smiled upon by God, whom English propagandists considered able to stand among the worthy nine, that is, the nine worthies of ancient history, and who even his enemies have been forced to admit was a paragon of wisdom, manliness, and courage. 
the length of Henry's minority had caused the old king's reputation to soar to even greater heights. In 1436, the Venetian poet and scholar Tito Livio Frulovisi was commissioned to write Henry V's posthumous biography, The Vita Enrici Quinti. Frulovisi's patron was Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, and one of Gloucester's chief purposes in commissioning the Italian was to produce a work that would encourage the sixteen-year-old Henry VI to honour his father's warrior spirit. Imitate that divine king your father in all things, wrote Frulovisi, seeking peace and quiet for your realm by using the same methods and martial valour as he used to subdue your common enemies. This was a lot to ask of a teenager who had grown up without ever actually seeing his father, or indeed anyone else, rule England as a king. Henry was an innocent-looking young man. In adulthood, he stood between five foot nine and five foot ten. His face would remain round and boyish well into his mature life. A high brow and curved eyebrows sat above large, wide-spaced eyes, a long nose and a small, delicate mouth, much like his mother's. His most famous portrait, produced in the 16th century, but probably copied from a lost lifelikeness, depicts him with smooth, plump cheeks and a weak chin, wearing a look of faint surprise. Henry seems to have been a solemn and sober youth. Certainly he was well-educated, and he could read and write in English and French with equal fluency. At his English coronation, he was seen to gaze sadly and wisely at the congregation before him, as if he were older than his years. Foreign observers found him to be a good-looking young man, possessed of kingly dignity. By the late autumn of 1432, as he approached his eleventh birthday, he had come to terms with some aspects of his status as an anointed king. On November the 29th, Richard Beecham, Earl of Warwick, Henry's personal tutor, who took responsibility for overseeing his upbringing and education, sat in a session of the Royal Council and informed them, as the minutes of the meeting attest, that the king was grown in years, in stature, and also in conceit and knowledge of his high and royal authority in the state, the which naturally causes him more and more to grouch with chastisement and to loathe it. Warwick requested more powers to ensure himself against the king's using his royal prerogative to defy or punish his teacher whenever he felt disgruntled or indignant about his lessons. Yet this wasn't Warwick's only concern. In the same meeting, he asked the council to grant him powers to keep ungoodly or unvirtuous men away from the royal presence, and similarly to banish anyone whom he deemed suspect of misgovernance and not behoveful nor expedient to be about the king. The council agreed, recognizing an eleven-year-old boy who might easily be swayed by the wrong people unless a careful eye was kept on him. Here was the first inkling of a problem that would magnify as his life went on. Henry would remain all his life a highly impressionable and suggestible king, 
permanently childlike in his preference for allowing others to make decisions for him. He could be extremely enthusiastic about certain matters. He was an avid reader of chronicles and histories, and given to religious pet projects, such as his attempt in 1442 to secure sainthood for the great Saxon king Alfred. Yet he remained blandly impassive about serious matters of public and national policy, lacking any real ability to drive government or take charge of the unavoidable business of foreign warfare. These weren't the qualities of a mighty king. The most vivid pen portrait we have of Henry VI was written by his personal confessor, John Blackman, toward the end of Henry's life. Understandably, given its author's vocation, Blackman's memoir makes great play of Henry's simplicity, his religious fervor, and the general godliness of his life. In places, the account is obviously distorted to play up the king's saintliness, ignoring Henry's taste for fine clothes, jewels, and the trappings of royal pageantry and display, which began to develop from his teenage years. It is well known that from his youth up, he always wore round-toed shoes and boots like a farmer's, wrote Blackman. He also customarily wore a long gown with a rolled hood like a townsman, and a full coat reaching below his knees, with shoes, boots, and footgear wholly black, rejecting expressly all curious fashion of clothing. This description seems to chime more with a desire on Blackman's part to exaggerate the king's piety. Plenty of other accounts recall Henry dressed in rich and vivid splendor on state occasions. All the same, much of the rest of Blackman's account agrees with other accounts and criticisms of Henry as he emerged from the shadow of childhood in the 1430s, from passing references in official records to scornful tracts condemning English foreign policy. The older he grew, the more his unusually limp and often downright vacant personality became apparent. He seems to have been gripped with a crippling sense of inertia in the face of his royal duties. He appeared absent and distracted when engaged in conversation. He spoke simply and in short sentences, and seemed to prefer studying Holy Scripture to attending government business. When he wore his crown on grand state occasions, he also wore a hair shirt. According to Blackman, the foulest curse that would pass his lips was forsooth and forsooth, and he told off those around him who used bad language for a swearer was his abomination. He was at heart a gentle and malleable soul, timid and reluctant in the extreme to make any significant decisions, squeamish about human flesh, agonized by conflict and war, and virtually incapable of leading men, least of all, into battle. He may have been chaste, generous, pious, and kind, but these weren't very useful qualities in a king who was expected to direct government, keep the peace between his greatest subjects, and sail across the ocean at regular intervals to slaughter the French. By these crude measures of kingship, Henry VI would grow up to be a tragic failure. During the mid-1430s, however, 
Henry's adult personality was still a work in progress, and the men of his council could maintain reasonable hope that he would soon begin to feel for the levers of power. History, after all, was encouraging. Edward III had been seventeen in 1330 when he led an armed coup against his mother's government. Richard II was fourteen when he faced down the peasants' revolt in 1381. Henry's own father had been sixteen when, as Prince of Wales, he had led troops at the Battle of Shrewsbury. But the vague hope became an urgent necessity in 1435, when Henry was fourteen, and England suffered two severe blows to her policy in France. The first concerned the realm's long-standing alliance with Burgundy. This was the diplomatic bedrock on which all the success of the past two decades had rested. It was the quarrel between the Burgundians and the Armagnacs that had destabilized France sufficiently for England to conquer her, and it was the Burgundian alliance that had allowed Henry V to broker the Treaty of Troyes and claim the French crown. Burgundian soldiers had captured Joan of Arc, and eventually handed her over to the English to be tried, and it was only through good relations with Burgundy that England could hope to continue as a credible occupying force in Normandy and other parts of France. Yet in 1435, at a peace council held in the buzzing Flemish merchant town of Arras, a place famous across Europe for its beautiful woven tapestries, the Anglo-Burgundian alliance dramatically unravelled. The Congress of Arras, held between July and September 1435, was supposed to be a chance to secure a truce between England and France, and broker a marriage between Henry VI and a French princess. But Henry VI's embassy, led by Cardinal Beaufort, was comprehensively outmaneuvered by brilliant French diplomacy, designed to collapse the talks with maximum blame attached to the English. Various proposals were offered by Charles VII's ambassadors, all of which appeared generous, but which effectively demanded that Henry give up his claim to be the rightful king of both realms, return everything won since Agincourt, and hold Normandy only in feudal deference to the French crown. Beaufort did everything he could to negotiate more acceptable terms, but he was refused in such a way that the English were made to look unbending and arrogant. Eventually, on September the 6th, 1435, Beaufort stormed out of the talks, leaving Burgundy and France to negotiate directly with each other. His retainers were caught in a rainstorm on the way out of Arras, and their vermilion cloaks the word honour sewn into their sleeves as a protest against the deceitful tactics to which they had been subjected, were drenched. But worse was to follow. On September the 14th, a week and a day after the English delegation left the talks, John, Duke of Bedford, whose health had been failing for some time, died in Rouen, broken by the strain of many years spent overseeing his nephew's second kingdom. He was forty-six. Bedford left behind him a vast and magnificent household, with a large collection of books, plate, tapestries, and treasure. But no amount of riches could mitigate the loss of his personal influence. 
For nearly fifteen years, he had been a living link between the spirit of Henry V's conquests and the demands of the present. Much moan was made amongst Englishmen that were at that time in Normandy. For as long as he lived, he was doubted, feared, and dread among the Frenchmen, wrote the author of the Brute Chronicle. In France, Bedford had been a majestic regent and an inspiring general. When he had been summoned home to England, he had exercised his unique standing as an invaluable mediator, a great nobleman who stood above faction, commanding the obedience of all. He was the only figure able to hold the peace between his uncle, Cardinal Beaufort, and his brother, Humphrey of Gloucester. His death robbed England of its most important figure of consensus, authority, and stability, the nearest thing it had to a surrogate king. Seven days later, Philip the Good, Duke of Burgundy, arrived at the Abbey of Saint-Vin to sign a treaty by which the two warring factions in France's civil war agreed to reconcile. Burgundy would recognize Charles VII as the rightful king of France. In return, Charles promised to take action against the men who had killed Philip's father in 1419. In a matter of weeks, England's whole diplomatic position, carefully constructed over more than twenty years, had been swept away. Their greatest ally had switched sides. It was a blow from which English ambition could never recover. In the eighteen months that followed Arras, the English position in France began to collapse. In the spring, Paris was liberated by forces loyal to Charles VII and his new ally, the Duke of Burgundy. After the departure of the last Englishman from the capital on April the 17th, 1436, the French began to address their attacks toward the Duchy of Normandy, forcing the English into a war of defence and retrenchment. At home, meanwhile, there was a deliberate and desperate attempt to foist adult rule upon the fourteen-year-old Henry VI. He was brought into his first council meeting on October the 1st, 1435, and orders began straight away to be made under his authority rather than by the command of the lords of the council alone. This fact was widely publicized. In letters sent to foreign councils and courts, it was remarked quite deliberately that the king had begun to attend to his own affairs. In May 1436, the Earl of Warwick was dismissed as the royal tutor, and no replacement appointed. A sign that Henry's period of education was over, and his induction into the full scope of kingly duties had begun. Two months later, Henry started to sign petitions with his own hand, writing R.H. and Nous avons Grant, below requests that he formally approved. The message to the outside world was clear. The minority had come to an end. Or had it? Superficially, Henry had begun to rule, yet there was much about his kingship that was unsatisfactory. Council minutes began to include notes, suggesting that the king was signing off requests that weren't just ill-advised, but actively damaging to the crown. Remember to speak unto the king to beware how that he granteth pardons, 
or else how that he doeth them to be amended, for he doeth to himself therein great disavail. Read 1, from February the 11th, 1438, when Henry had granted a petition impoverishing himself to the tune of two thousand marks. The very next day another nearly identical note proposed that it should be explained to the king that his injudicious granting away of the constableship and stewardship of the castle of Chirk in North Wales had cost him another thousand marks. Tellingly, no attempt was made to take Henry back to Normandy to command his own armies, or even to serve as a figurehead, despite the peril resulting from Bedford's death and Burgundy's betrayal. Clearly, the boy wasn't made in his father's mould. The combination of Bedford's death and the young king's inability to step up to the task of vigorous rule left England with a kind of governmental vacuum, and into this vacuum, over the course of the 1430s, stepped William de la Pole, 4th Earl of Suffolk. Suffolk's life until this point had been spent in a broadly conventional career of aristocratic soldiering. His father, Michael, had died of dysentery at the Siege of Arfleur. His elder brother, also called Michael, had suffered a rare and unlucky death for an Englishman in being killed at the Battle of Agincourt. William had therefore unexpectedly become the fourth Earl of Suffolk at the age of nineteen. He spent the next decade and a half building up his military experience and establishing a record of total loyalty to the crown. He was a capable soldier who fought with sufficient distinction in Brittany and Normandy to be named as a Knight of the Garter, in 1421. Later, he was awarded several important offices and grants of land in captured territory, and served as an ambassador to the Low Countries in 1425. His final experience of fighting in France, however, hadn't been a happy one. He was in a position of high command when Orléans fell to Joan of Arc and her army in 1429. Then, in the aftermath, he had attempted to lead the retreat of a few hundred Englishmen along the banks of the River Loire. Five or six thousand Frenchmen, led by the Duke of Alençon and Joan of Arc, were in fierce pursuit, and it had been all that Suffolk could do to direct his troops to shelter in the town of Jargeau, a small but reasonably well-defended settlement about eleven miles upstream from Orléans with a town wall and fortifications around a bridge across the river. Once they reached the town, Suffolk commanded his men and the inhabitants of Jargeau to barricade the walled part of the town for the inevitable siege. And sure enough, no sooner had the English settled in than the French immediately surrounded them on all sides and commenced to attack them very sharply and to assault them in many places. Suffolk had twice attempted to negotiate a short truce, and twice the French had rejected his overtures, first because he was deemed to have breached chivalric protocol by negotiating with a captain of low status, rather than with the Duke of Alençon, and subsequently because Alençon claimed that the noise of the French assaults was such that he simply 
didn't hear the messages being brought from the town. Given the size of the cannons that the French had deployed to smash down the walls of the bridge and town, including one absolutely massive gun called Shepherdess, after Joan of Arc, it is just possible that Alençon was telling the truth. In any case, the bombardment was brutal and effective. Although one enterprising Englishman had managed to hit Joan on the head with a rock thrown from the town walls, cracking her helmet in two and knocking her briefly to the ground, her galvanizing presence had been enough to spur the French to victory. Georgiot had fallen in less than a day. Suffolk and his brother, Sir John de la Pole, were both captured, and another brother, Sir Alexander de la Pole, was killed, along with more than one hundred more defenders. It was a dismal defeat, alleviated only slightly for Suffolk by the fact that he had managed to knight his captor, a lowly soldier rather than a nobleman, before formally surrendering, thereby avoiding the utter chivalric humiliation of having to give his lordly person up to a man of mean status. After Jargeau, Suffolk had been taken to Orléans and imprisoned for a number of months. He was finally released in 1430, for a ransom he would later claim was an eye-watering £20,000, or about seven times his annual income during the wealthiest period of his life. Back in England, he began building an extensive and deep-rooted base of power that straddled court, countryside, and council, and eventually put him in control of the mainspring of royal authority. Suffolk built up his influence through a combination of boldness, good fortune, excellent connections, and old-fashioned stealth. His starting point was the lands associated with his earldom, which gave him a substantial power block in East Anglia. He was the dominant nobleman in Suffolk and Norfolk. A marriage to the distinguished, stunningly beautiful and extremely rich widow Alice Chaucer, Dowager Countess of Salisbury, brought more lands in Oxfordshire and Berkshire, close to the centre of royal government. It also introduced Suffolk into the spheres of national politics, since the Chaucers were close associates of Cardinal Beaufort and Catherine de Valois. These connections may well have lain behind Suffolk's appointment to the Royal Council in 1431, but here he was also undoubtedly helped by his easy relations with the other leading voice in the minority government, Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. Rare was the man who could straddle the Beaufort-Gloucester split, but Suffolk showed from very early in his political career that he was a pragmatist who preferred working across factional divides to taking sides. He wasn't an exceptionally charismatic or commanding individual, but what he lacked in personality he amply made up for in diligence and the ability to render himself agreeable to mutually hostile colleagues. Between 1431 and 1436, Suffolk gradually built up a reputation for assiduous royal service. He was one of the keenest attendees on the royal council, served alongside Cardinal Beaufort in the disastrous embassy at the Congress of Arras, 
and even returned briefly to military service following Bedford's death, attempting to pacify areas of Normandy. In this, he joined up with the young and ambitious Richard, Duke of York, who led an army during the campaigning season of late summer and autumn, 1436. Just as important, however, from 1433, Suffolk served as steward of the royal household. The steward enforced discipline and supervised all the day-to-day -day running of a domestic operation involving several hundred officers, servants, and assistants. Out of necessity, he had regular, informal, and largely unchecked personal contact with the king at all hours of the day. Therefore, at the royal court it was an important position, one that Suffolk valued so much that he made sure to have it guaranteed by the council before he left to fight in France. By the second half of the 1430s, he had thus established himself as both a stalwart of the administration and the central figure in the king's household. Other figures, particularly Beaufort and Gloucester, still outranked him and had their own access to Henry, but gradually, through his diligent attendance at council meetings and his preeminence at court, Suffolk became, in effect, the main channel for official and unofficial access to the king. Throughout the 1430s, as Henry's councillors attempted to nudge the young king into ruling in his own right, there was a to-and-fro of power between the household and the council chamber. Wherever the power went, Suffolk was there too. This wasn't, it should be said, a purely self-interested power grab on Suffolk's behalf. Undoubtedly he was ambitious, and he would later brazenly accrue offices and lands for his own personal gain, but Suffolk was allowed to take on the role of royal puppeteer thanks to a general consensus among both his aristocratic colleagues and other important figures at court, driven by the realization that someone would have to coordinate government behind the scenes until such time as a king summoned enough character and maturity to do it for himself. Nevertheless, Suffolk's omnipresence allowed him to wield influence in a variety of ways and throughout every aspect of government policy and royal activity, which is why we can detect his hand beneath the decision in 1437 to send Edmund and Jasper Tudor to live with his sister, Catherine de la Pole, at Barking Abbey. And as the years passed, it would make him one of the most powerful men in England. Margaret Paston, doyenne of the famous letter-writing East Anglian dynasty, wrote that without Suffolk's blessing, no one in England could defend their property or enjoy their life. Unless, as she put it, ye have my lord of Suffolk's good lordship, while the world is as it is, ye can never live in peace. However, as Suffolk amassed and exercised his considerable wealth and power, ruling quietly in the name of a wavering and inert king, he was inadvertently creating a dangerous political situation. For to operate kingship by stealth, even with the noblest intentions, was to play with fire. As the years passed, 
The dangers of manipulating the natural means of royal rule steadily increased. Soon enough, the problems of Suffolk's good lordship would be brutally exposed. Chapter 6 A Dear Marriage A nervous crowd stood waiting on Blackheath. It was Friday, May the 28th, 1445, and the large grassy area of common land on the south bank of the Thames, just downriver from Southwark, swarmed with London's most notable citizens. The mayor, the aldermen of London's governing council, representatives of all the wealthy, liveried companies of the city, all former London sheriffs, and a group of minstrels. The city had been preparing for this day for the better part of a year, and everyone of note was dressed identically, in custom-stitched gowns the colour of the bluest summer sky, trimmed with red hoods, and embroidered with the crest of the wearer's profession. The design of these fine robes had been a matter of intense civic debate, causing arguments that had raged for several weeks in the council chamber the previous August. It had taken considerable political energy to defeat the idea that the aldermen ought to be wearing saffron rather than blue. These were no petty squabbles. It was vital that the leading citizens of London represent the city at its most dazzling, for they had gathered to celebrate the arrival of a highly esteemed visitor. She was Margaret of Anjou, fifteen-year-old daughter of Duke René of Anjou, a famous but impoverished nobleman from central France. René held a number of splendid-sounding titles— he was, in theory, king both of Sicily and Jerusalem, but he was also a penniless and serially unlucky soldier who has spent most of his daughter's youth locked in his enemy's jails or being beaten in wars on the Italian peninsula, a fact that had allowed the women of his family to wield a relatively large degree of political power and autonomy on his behalf. Nevertheless, René was the Queen of France's brother, which made Margaret the king's niece. Her father may have been a relative pauper, but the young girl was born of high blood, and her family was well-connected, which was why Margaret had come to England to fulfil a political role of her own. She was the new bride and queen consort of King Henry VI. Margaret's marriage to Henry was Suffolk's brainchild. The girl's father was so poor that she came with a pitiful dowry, a measly twenty thousand francs, and the hollow promise that one day the English king would inherit René's claim to the crown of Majorca. But marrying Henry to the French king's niece seemed to serve two greater purposes. It would bring England a diplomatic and military truce in the French wars, and it would enable Henry and Margaret to rebuild the dwindling stock of the English royal family. Since Bedford's death in 1435, England's French policy had been a mess. A famine caused by crop failures in England and Normandy between 1437 and 1440 had impoverished the realm on both sides of the Channel, 
and the Crown was heavily indebted and in arrears with its payments to captains and troops. Parliaments now grumbled loudly when asked to approve new taxes for the never-ending war. At no point since his French coronation had any really serious effort been made to take Henry back to France at the head of an army. Neither would the king ever be taken to Scotland or Ireland. It was true that his rival, Charles VII, had also avoided taking command in the field, but Charles was at least a vigorous director of strategy. The same couldn't be said of his nephew. During the early 1440s, Henry VI had thrown a great deal of his energy into supporting the foundation of Eton College, a grammar school dedicated to the Virgin Mary, whose architectural plans he pored over and annotated with his own hand. At the same time, he had sponsored the establishment of King's College, Cambridge, a large, rich place of higher education explicitly founded for poor and indigent scholar clerks. Few Plantagenet kings ever took as keen an interest in popular education as Henry VI. But few ever took less interest in warfare. Thus, in England, a series of confused, conflicting, and counterproductive policies have been pursued under the leadership of various loud voices in government. In 1440, Cardinal Beaufort had gambled away one of England's most valuable diplomatic chips by permitting the release of the Duke of Orléans, a prisoner taken at the Battle of Agincourt in 1415, who had spent the ensuing twenty-five years writing romances in English castles, including the first recorded Valentine's poem. Je suis déjà d'amour tanné, ma très douce Valentine. I am already sick of love, my very sweet Valentine. Orléans' release had enraged Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, whose chief desire never wavered from all-out attack on France. Gloucester saw Orléans' release as a disgrace to Henry V's memory, and made his feelings widely known, though he would soon be compelled to direct his attentions closer to home. In 1441, a scandal blew up involving the Duke's second wife, Eleanor Cobham, the spirited young lady-in-waiting for whom he had abandoned his first wife, Jacqueline of Hainaut, in 1428, when their childless marriage was annulled by the Pope. The circumstances of the marriage were somewhat controversial, given Eleanor's relatively lowly social status. But she proved to be a stately and intelligent woman who reveled at the head of the sumptuous Renaissance court that she and her husband held at their manor of Greenwich, where they hosted poets, musicians, and playwrights. The death of Bedford meant that Gloucester was heir presumptive. By extension, Eleanor found herself potentially the next queen. The thought clearly thrilled and intrigued her, and she began consulting astrologers and necromancers to predict the date of the king's death, and thus, by extension, King Humphrey's accession. But in this matter she had grievously overreached. The astrologers whom she consulted were men of considerable academic standing. 
for this was an age when the realms of science and superstition largely overlapped. But if her diviners were well-schooled, they were also politically naive. They predicted that in the summer of 1441, Henry VI would sicken and die. Eleanor, or those around her, found it impossible to keep this a secret, and rumors of the king's death began to swirl around the capital and the country. The high standing of her husband wasn't enough to protect Eleanor. In July she was arrested, tried, and, as one chronicler put it, damned for a witch and a heretic, and put in perpetual prison. Her associates were put to death, but Eleanor managed to escape the flames. She was sentenced to a very public and humiliating penance, ordered to walk in her bare feet, carrying a candle about the streets of London on three occasions in November. Thank you for listening to this episode of All Things Plantagenet. Remember, we also have a website, www.allthingsplantagenet.com, where you can find additional information and resources, as well as the other episodes. Thank you for listening. And have a great day.